All right, good morning. I'll try and do this through chattering teeth. This is, uh, I've been on this series, I think, about seven years or so, and this is the first time I can remember having snow flurries uh, this late in March. This is um, a little unusual, but uh, hey, as David said, this is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. So, Lord, thanks a lot for today. Thanks for bringing us to a racetrack. There's no better place to be than uh, doing what you've put in our hearts to do. I pray that you will be with us this morning, open the eyes of our hearts, and uh, give us ears to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we've all heard the expression, hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, that simply means that after an event has happened, then we look back on it and we say, oh, okay, that, that's what I should have done, or sometimes there's even like, that's why that event happened. And as we were driving through Knoxville on our way here, uh, I used to live in Knoxville, and I said, oh, there's, there's uh, the road where I used to live, and my mom was riding with me, and I said, there's where I used to live, and had a nice little condo up there, and, and, uh, uh, and she said, you know, it was amazing that you were able to sell it, because um, for the last couple years that you lived there, the, the, the contractor that had been building the cookie-cutter houses um, had sold off to an investor, and they started putting renters in there, and the neighborhood really went into a big decline and uh, it was amazing you were able to sell it. I said, you know, it's interesting because I tried to sell that place probably six months, uh, maybe eight months before, and I couldn't get a bite on it. I tried to sell it. I was going to get out of there. I found myself a really cool house that needed a little bit of work done to it. Had a nice garage to make a workshop in. And, and uh, so I put my, my condo up for sale, and I didn't get a single bite. And I lowered the price, and nothing happened, and nothing happened. And I finally just said, you know, I'm not going to have two mortgages. Um, I'll just forget about moving, and I'll just live here for a while longer and see what God has for my life. And then when you know it, Yamaha called me up. I was working for Yamaha Motor Corporation at the time as a sales rep living in Knoxville and covering uh, Tennessee and, and Kentucky. And Yamaha called me up and said, hey, we're restructuring, and if you want to keep your job, then we need you to move to Nashville. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm moving to Nashville. I put my house up uh, on the market, put it up for sale, and it sold within 30 days for my full asking price. I was like, wow, there's this confirmation that God is in this move, and this is a, this is a cool thing. But hindsight, 2020, you know, had I sold it before and gotten into another house, things could have been a lot different for me. I'm glad I waited on the Lord in that situation. Well, uh, this is leading into uh, what we're going to be talking about, hindsight being 2020, that we can look back, and because of the scriptures, we can look back and we can see what God's been doing. And next week is going to be Easter. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. It's the highest attendance um, Sunday of any Sunday in the year. If people only go to church once, they go on su on Easter Sunday. If they go twice, they go to Christmas and Easter, and we call them Christers. Uh, it's, it's, it's that one day when everybody's willing to go to church. And uh, next week, I'll definitely be in church. I encourage you to go find your local church, go to church on Easter Sunday. It, it's, a, it's a great service because it's awesome that we get to remember that Jesus, although he was crucified and he was dead and he was buried, he came back to life. And because of him, we have hope for eternity. So I'm going to church next week. I encourage you to go. I know that some of our local races have races on Easter Sunday, and I have raced on Easter Sunday before, but not this year. I really want to get into church and, uh, and hear that beautiful story once again. But today, as, as we look back on this, we remember that the week before Easter, we call it Palm Sunday. 
Palm Sunday is when you read through the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them talk about this, this triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem at the start of the Passover celebration. And as he comes into Jerusalem, the people are cheering him on. They're, laying, they're taking off their coats. They're laying it on the road so that he has basically pavement to, to ride across on. They've got, got his, uh, his donkey. He's riding on a donkey, and they've, they've saddled it. It's never been ridden. They've saddled it with, with coats. So he has a nice soft seat. And people are just shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's this, this huge celebration as Jesus comes in. And it's called Palm Sunday is what we refer to it nowadays. It's amazing, though, that that Sunday, and everybody's cheering, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by Thursday night, they're saying, kill him. And how do you go from being so happy to seeing this amazing guy who you've heard so much about all these miracles, even heard a rumor that a dead man was brought back to life because of this guy, Jesus. And you hear all these wonderful things, and here he is coming into Jerusalem. How do you go from Hosanna to kill him in just four short days? Well, all four of the Gospels recount those last few days of Jesus' life. And, uh, and when you put all four of them together, you have a pretty clear picture. And it's what's, what's really, really cool is that all through Jesus' life, you can look at the life of Jesus and you can see how Old Testament prophecy that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even here, how that prophecy comes true in the life of Christ, how he was born in Bethlehem, how he had to flee to Egypt, how he did signs and miracles and wonders in the, in the region of Galilee, how the blind were able to see, the deaf were able to hear, the lame were able to walk, as Isaiah prophesied 750 years before Jesus was even on this earth. And even in this moment, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and people are taking the palm branches, and they're laying them down in the road, and they're chanting, and they're cheering for him, it's amazing that even then, prophecy is coming true. There's a prophet who lived 500 years before Jesus was even born. In 516 B.C., Zechariah wrote, he said, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as Jesus comes in, all the people are chanting that quote from, uh, from David in Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And this is all coming true. The, the really cool thing is that when John writes the story, he even makes a little footnote here. He said, his disciples did not understand the thing, these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that means he was come back to life and ascended into heaven, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So as prophecy is coming true before their very eyes, they don't even recognize that this is an amazing thing. Instead, they just see, well, there's Jesus. He says in two days there's going to be a Passover. We should start going, making our way into Jerusalem. He says, hey, you guys go on ahead. Go into the city. You're going to find a, a donkey tied up there. Take that donkey and bring it to me. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, just tell them that your master has need of it. And they'll say, okay. And so the disciples go into the city. They see a donkey tied up. They untie it. Somebody says, hey, what are you doing? They said, Master has need of it. Okay, no problem. And off they go. They saddle Jesus up with their new coats on top of the donkey. He comes riding in. Prophecy's coming true. And uh, as, as he's coming in, and all the people are chanting, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they say, Jesus, you ought to quiet these people down. They're cheering for you as if you are God. <laughs> and Jesus is like, if they were quiet, even the stones would cry out. 
In other words, I'm not going to quiet them. And he quotes basically very reminiscent of what Isaiah said when, when God was speaking through Isaiah. And Isaiah said that uh, when God's word goes forth, it doesn't return void. And that through creation, even the rocks and the hills will rejoice and even the trees will clap their hands. And then Jesus says, even the stones will cry out because of what's happening right here. Of course, this infuriates the Pharisees. They'd already been looking for an excuse to get rid of Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, had said, it is better that one man should die for all the people than that all the people should perish. He had no idea how true he was. What Caiaphas was thinking, and what all the religious leaders were thinking, was that we are under Roman rule. The Romans are the final authority of our land. The Romans have given us, the religious leaders, the most authority of any Jew. We have, actually have a pretty good life. We get, to, uh, we get to make the law. We get to enforce the law. We're pretty important people. We have a lot of prestige. We have a lot of wealth. And there's this rebel rouser, Jesus, who's out here getting these crowds all stirred up. And they're talking about insurrection. They're talking about rising up against Rome. And if Jesus leads an insurrection against Rome, Rome will crush us. And they will kill all of us. We will lose our positions of prestige. We'll probably be thrown in prison. It's better that we kill Jesus than to have Rome kill all of us. And that sounds actually pretty good. If, you're, if, if that was their true motive, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But as you read through the Gospels and you see the true motives of the Pharisees, they were very much in tune with their wealth and their power and their prestige. And they enjoyed their grip on the people. They were, uh, it was more political than it was religious. Because you see how they constantly took the religion, the Old Testament law that had been passed on to Moses, you see how they constantly take that and they twist it for their own benefit. And they're complete hypocrites and Jesus calls them out on it every single time. And every time he calls out the Pharisees, they get mad. And they want to put Jesus down. They want, to, they want to put him away, but they can't do anything. There's a multitude of people that are following Jesus. And so finally they conspire. They say, we need, we need to get rid of this Jesus. But we can't do it in front of the crowd because the crowd, he, he has the loyalty of the crowd. We need to get him away from the crowd. We need to find an inside man who's going to tell us where he's going to be, when he's going to be away from the crowd. And enter Judas Iscariot. Judas one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the guy that's closest, the 12 people that are closest to Jesus, been walking with Jesus, been seeing the miracles for over three years. They've been seeing Jesus in action. The whole time, even the 12 disciples are like, Jesus, are you going to rise up against Rome now? Jesus, you can feed all these people. Man, imagine what you could do with an army. We'd never go hungry. Jesus, you can heal the sick. Imagine if we got an arrow through the arm, what you could do with that. Jesus, you can even raise the dead? Man, we got to go against Rome now. His disciples never get who he is and what he's all about. And he's constantly telling them, guys, I'm going to die. And he tells them plainly three times, I'm going to die. <laughs> and three times they're like, no, you're not. What are you talking about? Crucifixion. Don't understand what you're talking about. They get to the upper room. Jesus tells them uh, throughout the story of his triumphal entry, um, he comes into the he comes into the temple. I'll back up for a second. He comes into the temple, God's house, and when he comes into the temple, he sees the money changers there. Now, if you've ever flown internationally and you land in a, into a foreign airport, one of the first things you'll see are the money changers. They're willing to. I flew to Japan last year, and the money changers were there to turn my currency, my U.S. dollars, into yen. Of course, there was, a, I think, an 8% fee attached to that. And if I didn't spend all the yen, 
I could come back and turn it in for American dollars for 8%. <laughs> and so Jesus comes into the temple and he sees the money changers there. Not only were they ripping the people off, but they were also selling sacrificial animals, which is actually okay. According to Old Testament law, it's okay. If you've traveled a long way to come to Jerusalem and to come to the temple, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily bring all these animals and things with you that you need to sacrifice. So you can buy it on site there. But the corrupt money changers were ripping the people off. The, the sacrifices the people were bringing, well, they weren't good enough. Hey, that one's not, that one's not going to pass inspection. You need to buy one for me for double the price. Jesus comes in. First stop he makes is the temple. He sees the money changers there. He drives them out. He gets upset and he quotes again. He quotes Isaiah. More prophecy coming true. He says, this is my father's house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. He takes the whips and he drives the money changers out. He spills the money changers' tables out. He clears the temple, restores the temple back to God's house. And we read that for the next couple days, he's in the temple. And he's speaking and he's preaching and he's healing people that are in the temple. Further driving the Pharisees insane and crazy and mad. They're looking for a way to kill him. Finally, on Thursday, Jesus says, it's time for the Passover meal. You guys go into the city. You'll find this guy. Tell him that your master has need of the upper room and he'll give it to you. Go in there and prepare a meal. They do exactly that. The 12 disciples and Jesus go into the upper room. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, which is t traditionally, that's a, that's a servant's job. The people are walking around. They've got sandals on. There's a dirt roads. Their feet get dirty. So uh, in our custom today, when you walk into somebody's house, you take your shoes off, typically. Maybe not at my house. But if your feet are dirty, you kick your shoes off, and then you walk on inside. In their day, you kick your sandals off, you get your feet washed, and then you're clean to walk on inside without making a huge mess. Well, the 12 disciples who come from various backgrounds, fishermen, tax collector, and uh, insurrectionists, and all these just rough, tough guys, they just walk on in, stroll on into the upper room. Jesus takes a towel starts washing their feet. Gets to, gets to the disciple Peter. Peter's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You're above that. And, Peter, and Jesus is like, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be my follower. And Peter's like, well, give me a whole bath then. <laughs> Jesus, the practical guy that he is, he's like, Peter, you took a bath this morning. You don't need a whole bath. You just need your feet washed. Now that I've shown you what it is to be a servant leader, you be the servants. Of course, they didn't get it. As John said, they didn't understand what was going on at the moment. They didn't understand until Jesus arose back to heaven. But in that upper room, they're breaking bread and they're having their final meal together. And Jesus says, one of you here is going to betray me. One of you here is going to hand me over to the religious leaders that have been looking to kill me and to destroy me. And immediately, all the disciples start chattering among themselves. Well, who is it? Who would do such a thing? There's 12 of us. You think it's me? Do you think it's you? Who is it? And Judas, who has already decided, who's already made the deal with the high priest that he would betray Jesus, Judas says, is it me, Lord? What an idiot. As if God didn't know, as if Jesus didn't know. Jesus looks at him and basically says, don't play games with me, Judas. Whatever you got to do, go do it. And all the disciples are sitting there and they're like, what do you mean by that? Maybe Judas has to go get supplies. Judas is the one that holds the money bag. Maybe Jesus is telling him to go get some supplies. We're really confused about this whole betrayal thing. And Jesus even said, the one with whom I break bread with and who I dip in this cup and give it to, that's the one who's going to betray me. 
And he did that with Judas, and yet the disciples, we don't have the full picture of it, but the disciples were still confused. I even like that portion because in Psalm, Psalm 41, David prophesies, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread with, has lifted his heel against me. Yet another prophecy coming true, even in that moment that Jesus was indeed the one that God sent to show us the way. So Judas goes out, and he goes to the high priest, and he tells them, I have Jesus for you. I know exactly where he's going to be. He often goes to this place with us late at night, and sure enough, late that night, Jesus is in that place, and he's been praying. And what his prayer has been is, God, if there's any other way to do what you're about to do, let's do it that way. I don't really want to go to the cross. I know what's ahead of me. I don't really want to do this. But if this is what you have, if there is no other way, then I'll do it. Give me the strength to do it. And sure enough, here comes Judas with a mob of soldiers, with the high priest, with all the religious leaders, and they come and they arrest Jesus. Of course, there's a little little skirmish there where Peter, who said, Jesus, I would die for you. Jesus is like, nah, Peter, you're going to deny three times that, that you even know me. Peter, eager to prove himself, pulls his sword out, takes a swing at one of the guys, misses, cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, hey, Peter, put away your sword. That's not what I'm here for. This is what has to happen. Rebukes Peter. I think Peter's feelings get hurt a little bit because after that, Peter indeed, three times, denies that he even knows Jesus. The rooster crows. Peter's heart is broken. Jesus is led out, led to, uh, led to the high priest. The high priest says, I find you guilty of blasphemy. I find you guilty of, of uh, crimes against God. You're worthy of death. Takes him to Pilate. Pilate says, you guys, uh, I don't even understand what your laws are. I don't understand what your religion is. What has he done? And they accuse him that, hey, this guy is mounting an insurrection against Rome. He's rising up against Caesar. He's called himself our king. And Pilate's like, you're calling yourself a king? It is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be here to defend me. But you see, I'm here by myself. My kingdom is of another world. And Pilate's like, um, that kind of concerns me. I'd really not, I really don't want to get on your bad side. He says, hey guys, I'm going to let Jesus go. And they're like, no, no, kill him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so sure enough, Pilate says, all right, it is as you say. Go ahead and do what you got to do. And they crucify Jesus. And next week when you go to church on Easter Sunday, you'll hear the story of how Jesus was laid in the grave. And how three days later on Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave. He triumphed over death. But the thing that disturbs me today is Judas. What made Judas betray Jesus? Why? After seeing all these things, after walking and talking with Jesus for three years, how do you do that? And the story actually begins, Judas' betrayal begins a couple days before Passover, two days before uh, the triumphal entry, two days before Palm Sunday. Matthew tells the story. I like his account of it. It's actually told in, in two of the other Gospels as well. But Matthew recounts the story that Jesus comes into Bethany, the place where he had raised Lazarus from the dead very, very recently. Jesus comes into Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. John explains that this is Mary Magdalene. Comes with very expensive perfume. She pours it on his head. 
and as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant and said, What is this waste? This could have been sold for a very large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, as I just now, this very moment, did. The next verse says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Why'd you sell? Why would you do this? You're pouring all this money onto the ground. You're wasting all this money. That money could have been used for something useful. Maybe feed the poor, maybe feed me. John tells us that Judas was the treasurer. He's the one that kept the money bag, but he often embezzled from it. He used that money for himself. So Judas, it's not that he concerned for the poor, but he wanted that money for himself. He wanted Jesus to meet Judas's expectations. Jesus, you're the one that's supposed to lead an insurrection against Rome. You're doing it all wrong. You're wasting money. You're hanging out with the lowest and the least important people. You're not doing anything to do anything about the problem with Rome. You're not meeting my expectation. And when Jesus finally said, I am not going to meet your expectation at all, you've got it all wrong. You always have, if you're really concerned about the poor, you can deal with them after I'm gone, but you only have me for a very short time. And this woman's doing what's right. Don't get on her. And Judas says, that's it. I've had enough of you, Jesus. You're not doing what I want you to do when I want you to do it. As I was preparing this message, and that was the theme that was coming across, what do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? I said, God, seems like I've already spoke on this subject many, many times. And then I felt the Holy Spirit say, have you got it yet? What's going on in your life, Chuck? Why haven't you been praying lately? Well, God, you don't even answer my prayer. Yeah. What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? Maybe this message is for you, Chuck. Maybe it's not for the people sitting here. So, all right, well, I'll have to be faithful to it. And then I was reminded instantly, all through the Bible, we see examples of people that God doesn't meet their expectations. The Garden of Eden, the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it's perfect. Even the temperature is perfect because we know that they're not wearing any clothes. So it has to be 72 degrees, not 25 degrees and snowing. Perfect. Everything's perfect. And, and the devil comes along to him and says, hey, did you know that God's holding out on you? God is withholding his very best from you. If you eat that fruit that he said don't eat, then you will be as wise as God is. You will know the difference between good and evil. As it turns out, we don't want to know the difference between good and evil. We only want to know good. But from that time, evil has existed in the world. And there's been a constant conflict. God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to do a great thing. I'm going to reveal myself to the whole world. I'm going to use you to do it. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Through you, you're going to have a, a, a descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count the number of descendants that come from you. I'm going to raise up a great nation. Through you, all the world's going to be blessed. Abraham says, man, that's great. At the time, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was pagan moon worshipers, left his father's house and goes to the land that God said go to. Abraham lived in a tent. I get tired of living in a motorhome. 
Abraham lived in a tent, and for 10 years, he just kind of wandered around wherever he felt like God was telling him to go. And not having any roots, not having any children. He and Sarah were barren, no children at all. And finally, Sarah comes to Abraham, and she says, Abraham, according to that preacher on TV, God helps those who help themselves. Maybe when he came to you and he said that you're going to have a great number of descendants, he didn't necessarily mean that you would have children with me. Maybe he just meant that you would have children. Now, here's my servant, Hagar. (laughs) And all the guys are like, so she's telling him to have sex with her servant? Her name's Hagar. (laughs) Abraham goes into Hagar the horrible. Sure enough, they have a child together. And God comes along and says, Abraham, that's not at all what I had intended. I told you that you would have a child and that it would be with Sarah. But because you've done this, I will indeed make a great nation of this child, Ishmael. There will be a great nation out of this child, Ishmael, but he will always be at odds with the children of Sarah that you have yet to have. Matter of fact, what God specifically said was that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. To this very day, the Arab nations, Iran, Iraq, Syria, all of those people trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And what's going on? Their hand against everyone, everyone's hand against them. The two nations, Israel and all the surrounding Arab nations, don't get along, just as God said way back in Genesis. So 14 years go by. Finally, Abraham does have a son with Sarah. His name's Isaac. From Isaac, yes, we have a great nation of Israel. But there was a time when Abraham said, God, you're failing to meet my expectations. I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands, and I'll make it work for me the way that I think that you should have been doing it all along. David, man after God's own heart. David, man, he's, to this day in Israel, the flag has the star of David on it. David's the most revered king that Israel ever had. The prophet Samuel comes to David when he's just a teenager and says, you are going to be the next king of Israel. David, very humble, accepts it. Great, that sounds great, but... But right now, I'm just a shepherd. I'm going to do my very best at what God's given me to do in this moment. David is such a godly man. He's such an example that I could never live up to, that none of us could. We look at David at that point in his life, and we're like, oh, man, there's that guy. Sure enough, David, he comes out. The the nation's at war. Saul, the current king, is at war with the Philistines. David goes to the battlefront just to visit his older brothers, bring him some bread and some cheese. He sees this giant on a hillside, Goliath. He says, why are you guys letting that guy talk back to us? We're the nation of God. God's with us. Somebody go kill him. And everybody's like, shut up, David. <laughs> and David says, well, I'll do it. Five smooth stones, takes the first one, cracks the giant in the head. The giant falls over. David runs, grabs Goliath's sword, cuts Goliath's head off. It's such a cool story. David, this David, who knows he's going to be king, who knows that God is with him, now he starts working for Saul. And he goes to Saul, and he he plays the harp for Saul, and he's hanging out with Saul. But because of that incident with Goliath, Saul gets very jealous of David. And his jealousy gets the best of him. And at one point, he even throws a spear at David to, to, to kill him. And David escapes. And it's not too long after that that David is running from Saul, running for his life, hiding out in caves, scratching in existence, not having any food, hungry, so hungry that he has to go to the priest and eat the holy bread. And he's running and he's running and God's not coming through. David, you're going to be the next king. 
God, I think he's trying to kill me. And if you don't step in and do something, he is going to kill me. And finally, David has enough of it. And we don't hear this story very often, but it's a true story. You can find it in the book of 1 Samuel. David goes to the Philistine camp. He goes to Gath, and he goes to the king of Gath, and he says, I'm defecting. Saul won't kill me if I'm over here with you guys. And he turns his back on God. He turns his back on God's promise. He says, I'll go, and I'll defect, and I'll be with the Philistines. He didn't fully defect because he told the king, he said, hey, give me my own little town. It's not right that I should share the holy or the, uh, the royal city with you. Just give me my own little town. Me and my men, we'll set up camp over here, Ziklag, and, uh, and, and we'll go and we'll make war on your enemies. Well, he didn't make war on, on Philistine enemies. He made war on Israel's enemies and told the king that, hey, yeah, I, I wiped out this whole town over here. And they were enemies of you, so we're all good. The king really liked David. Finally, the king says, hey, David, why don't you march into war with me against Israel? And David says, okay, I'll march into war with you. The other Philistine generals said, hey, that's the guy that killed Goliath. We can't trust him. We won't let him go with us. While David was out there marching to go against Israel, a foreign army came in and invaded Ziklag, took all the wives and all the children captive. And, uh, and so when David was denied that you're not allowed to go to war with us, he comes back to his town, finds it vacant and deserted, and his men rise up against him, and they are ready to stone him to death, ready to kill him. And David finally hits his knees and says, God, what should I do? There was a point in David, the greatest king that Israel's ever had, the man after God's own heart, there was a point where even David said, God, you're not doing what I thought you would do. You're not doing what I thought you should do. And I'm over it. And I'm going to take matters into my own hand. In every case that we see that happen, we see that there's a consequence. Judas, Jesus, you're not the Messiah I thought you were going to be. You're not doing what I thought you ought to do. I'll take matters into my own hand. The thing that's most important to me is finances, is money. I'll sell you out. Judas sells him out. Jesus, crucified, buried, raises again. Judas, oh my gosh, what have I done? Goes out and kills himself. There's consequence. Every time we step in and we take the role of God, there's a consequence for it. And the question today is, who's Jesus for you? Is Jesus the Messiah who's going to make your life better? Or is Jesus the Messiah who's going to give you eternal life? Does he give you a better life or an eternal life? Because here's the fact. An eternal life is a better life. But because you have a better life doesn't mean you'll have eternal life. Jesus came and he says, I came that you may have life that you may have it abundantly. And when we start living into that eternal purpose, the God, I don't understand what you're doing in my life. I don't understand why you don't answer my prayers. I don't understand why my prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling and never even seem to reach your ear. I don't understand what you're doing, but I will live into your purposes. Then we find out what the rest of the, the people in the New Testament, how they start living. You see Peter after his three-time denial of Jesus Christ, and then he realizes, oh, that's who Jesus was. He wasn't the Messiah that I wanted. He was the Messiah that I needed. He came not to give me a better life, but to give me eternal life. He starts living into that eternal life, and Peter's the one uh, that, that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Peter, your name is now not Simon. It is Peter the rock. I will build my church. And Peter started living into that. Saul, on his way to Damascus, became known as Paul, writes half the New Testament. In, in his writings in Philippians, he's sitting in jail. 
And he says, I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be cold. I know what it is to be persecuted. But in all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's shipwrecked. He's snake bitten. He's beaten. He's imprisoned. He's sentenced to die. And in all things, he gives God the glory because he lives into an eternal purpose. I don't know why God does the things that he does or why God doesn't do the things that he doesn't do. But I do know that God is sovereign. And I do know that Jesus came to this life, not that I would have a better life, but that I would have eternal life. And through that, I will live a better life, even here on this earth. And I want the same for you. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the sun starting to come out. We look forward to what you're doing in our lives. And I just pray that you'll reveal yourself to each one of us in a personal way. That we'll recognize that it's you that's at work in our life. And that we'll lay down our idols and the things that we are holding up as so important. And that we'll surrender to you and that you will do great and amazing and mighty things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys. Have a great race today.